Today I want to speak to us out of Ephesians chapter 2, and I want to touch back on, on verses 8, 9, and 10, just for a brief moment, just for a moment, just to kind of set the stage for verses 11 through 22. But let me say this, and I don't say this to you often, but I feel like today I'm going to be preaching to the choir. By that I mean, today I believe that we as a church uh, understand the principles that Paul is preaching here in Ephesians chapter 2 from verses 11 to 22. He's going to be talking about bringing, he's going to be talking about bringing two groups into one. Basically, the, the people in Ephesus were mostly Gentiles. And so the church was made up in Jerusalem of Jews, mostly Jews. And Jews and Gentiles didn't mix. They were like water and oil. They just didn't fit together. There was such a history of the Jews hating the Gentiles and calling them but dogs and uncircumcised people. And, and that was the lowest, the lowest uh, statement they could make about another group of people. And what Paul is going to preach on is how to bring these two groups together, how our Lord wants the church to be unified. And it's not simply only the... The, the broad and bigger picture isn't simply Jew and Gentile. The bigger picture is that we all fit together as a family. And I want to say to you, as far as I understand it here, we're really pretty much, we're, we've got a nice grip on it. The, the, one of the families, the, the pastor and his wife that came and spoke to, uh, to us up in, in the Palm Springs area for the couples retreat, made mention more than once that, there is really, this is a unique body of believers. There was such a feeling of family. That's the way they put it. Such a feeling of family. Everybody hugs one another. And, and there was just this feeling of warmth within our, our congregation. And I must say that's true here. You people really have blessed us as a church. It is a great trait to have. And it's a great trait to work on as a body of believers. So going into this message, I want you to know that I'm not preaching at anyone. I, as a matter of fact, I'm just being obedient to the Word of God and preaching what's, what's, what's next in line. But I, I feel, uh, as a church, we really have a good handle on this. But, like anything else within the Word of God, it is good to refresh our memories. And it's good to not let Satan get a foothold within our church in any way, shape, or form. Two weeks ago... We left off uh, in Ephesians, and we were talking about salvation. We were talking about the blessings of being saved. And, and look back with me, please, at verses 8 and 9 and, and 10. I realize that we went over these verses, but they feed in to verses 11 through the end of this chapter beautifully. Paul reminds us, for by grace we have been saved. This is in verse 8 of, of chapter 2 of Ephesians. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. It is not a result of works, so that none of us, not a one of us, should boast. And then Paul writes this statement in verse 10. We are His, God's workmanship. We have been created in Christ Jesus for what? For good work which God has prepared beforehand so that we should walk in these good works, 
these things that God has prepared for us beforehand, we have been created in Christ Jesus for these works. I didn't mention it last night, but I will today. One of the, in fact, David Perry walked up to me and said, I think I got it. I think I got what you were preaching on. Normally he teases me. So I said, what do you, you know, I start to laugh. What do you got? And he says, no, I've got it. He says, I've come to Christ not for myself. I've come to Christ for you and to glorify God. And I said, you are listening. <laughs> That's the truth. I didn't say it in so many words last night, but if you want to put the message that I'm going to give you now in the next, what, half hour? If we want to put that into some sort of context, that's it. You and I have come to believe in Jesus Christ, not for ourselves, but for one another. And to glorify the very awesome and wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that's what we're going to learn this, this morning. All the good works that you and I do have absolutely no part in our gaining more of a salvation. Nonetheless, the good works that we do have a great deal with our living out this, this salvation that we have. The good works that we do have been, verse 10, prepared beforehand by God. Therefore, think it through with me. None of us should be jealous of what the other person does. Because it is God who has prepared it for us. He has given us ministry. He has given us things to do so that we would simply be faithful walking in what God has asked us to do. Therefore, to have jealousies amongst the body of Christ is foolishness. It's to be jealous of what God has done. He, in His wisdom, has given out His gifts. And some have abundant uh, gifts that, 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 that some of us might want to have if we could choose. But the truth of the matter is, we don't get to choose. God does. Therefore, what Paul is preaching on, as we get in from verse 11 to verse 22, is there is no need to be jealous, brethren. Verse 10 sets the stage. We have, we are God's workmanship. That, that word workmanship translates in the Greek to be poem. We're God's workmanship. We've been created in Christ Jesus for these good works that God has prepared beforehand for us so that we would just simply walk in them. There's no reason to take pride in what we do. There's no reason to, to say, whoa, I'm better than so-and-so. No, we have just been gifted by God and all God asks of us is, be faithful to walk in the, the good works that I have for you. Sets the stage. So Jesus said basically as much about good works. Listen, John chapter 15 verse 8. 
He says, Jesus says, my Father is glorified by this. Now, when you and I read the Bible, we ought to read it slowly enough that we really listen to what our Lord is saying. So if you, say, if you read something like that, it would be good to stop. Not go ahead and read, but, but think. Jesus says, my Father is glorified by this. It would be a great thing to ask, by what, Jesus? What is the Father glorified by? Jesus goes on to answer that you bear much fruit. In other words, that you do good works. And what? Jesus goes on to say, and so prove to be my disciples. Over and over again, we are going to hear this theme in Ephesians chapter 2. We do what we do to prove to the world that, that we walk with God to prove to the world that we are His disciples. We don't do these things to, to gather together uh, brownie points. Is that a good way of saying it? Or, or something extra so that when we walk before God, we can stand and say, look, look what all I did. No, He's just going to simply say, you only did what I have prepared for you. Thank you for doing that. But it, it gives me a, more crowns. I don't think so. It gives me more stability in heaven? No. No, we just do what we do to glorify our God and so prove that we are disciples of His. And so when Dave came to me last night after that and said, I've got it. I've come to believe in Jesus Christ not for my benefit. I've come to believe in Jesus Christ for your benefit and for praising and glorifying my Father who is in heaven. And that's good. When, God, when God's people do God's work, we bear fruit for His kingdom, and therefore we bring glory to His name. I know of no greater reason for you and me to serve the Lord. I, I know of no finer reason to to do whatever it is that we have been called to do by the grace of God than to glorify His most precious name. But I want you to see something, and I want you to nail it down in your own heart. Would you turn back just to Galatians? Galatians to the left. It's just a few pages. Galatians chapter 2. We are taught by Paul, clearly, that the good works that we do cannot save us. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16, Nevertheless, he says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but, I'm going to add some words, we are justified. We are justified through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul writes, Even we, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. He says, since the works of the law, no flesh is going to be justified. Just as, just as Paul wrote, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it's a gift of God. It is not a result of works, because none of us should boast of what we have in God. God purely exists. We exist purely to glorify the wonderful name of God. And we get to do it 
Church, we get to do it by serving Him, and we serve Him doing things that He has already prepared for us. All we want to do is walk in these things. So, by God's grace, we are saved through faith. And then God prepares this good works to be done by us. Now, let me tell you what's going to take place. Paul is going to teach us. That irritates Satan. Satan cannot harm you or me if we've come to Christ, but he can certainly stop us from fulfilling the most precious thing that we could ever do, and that is glorifying our God's name by what we do in the name of Christ. And he would love to stop that. I made mention at the conference we were just at. I made mention to the men, and I, I made a, might have made mention to the whole group, but I said, for goodness sake, don't try to take everything you learned here and try to apply it into your lives. Take one part that you feel that you need to work on and make that applicable so that you work on it within your marriage or within your life. And then I said to the guys, as I think I said to the whole group, and be careful because Satan is going to try to disrupt. Some, some guys told me, I said on the way home or when you get home, some guy says, not even out of the parking lot, Pastor. I hit my mine hit the thing when when I got home. I got home and and Kay wanted to use my flash drive. Don't put this on the tape because we've already discussed this. She wanted to use my flash drive. I don't even know what a flash drive is, but I have one and it's in my computer. I, I, so we start discussing KME about this last drive. And I don't want to take it. I don't like to move anything off my computer. I like things just as they are. I put all my pencils where they belong. Everything has its place. Everything has a place and every place has a thing. And I put everything where it's supposed to be on my little desk. Because, <laughs> because if anything is moved, I don't know where it is. And I get confused. I, I get confused very easily. So, so we want to take some PowerPoints up to the... We don't. We do. You know what I mean? You got the drift? And so we say, let's take your PowerPoint, your flash drive out, so we can do the PowerPoints up there. And I said, why don't you take your flash drive out? So we don't know where our flash drive is. We do, but we don't. <laughs> Doggone if that flash drive up there didn't get erased. All my messages, all of I have is on that flash drive. Well, I got, we got a backup too. But I still want both of them working simultaneously. So Wes Porter's trying to f figure it out. So when I get back, I simply says, you know, I told you not to take my flash drive. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Boom. It was like... <laughs> I had to ask her forgiveness over and over again. And I had to convince her what I was true in my heart, what I said up there at the conference. That computer and that flash drive and those messages that were lost, they're, they're, not, <laughs> they're not more important than she is. The truth of the matter, that's the truth. That's the truth. She's more important than all of that. But I, but I told them, I said, you know, I said, 
be aware Satan's going to try to attack you. I didn't know that these other fingers were pointing back at me. And it was, a, it was an interesting maybe 10, 15 minutes in our house. And, uh, and finally I came to my senses and said, you know, Lord, I said, Kay, please forgive me. This is idiotic, idiotic that I'm even worried about that stuff. Um, you're much more important. And, and uh, by the grace of God, she believed me. And, uh, <laughs> and we worked it all out. But I'm saying to you that when a, a church is doing well, and I believe we are, Satan will want to disrupt us. There would be nothing, nothing greater for him than to try to um, stop us from really loving one another within the body of Christ. For some people, this place, this church is our sanctuary. For some of us, our families are not that necessary place right at this point in time, and, and our, our workplace is not this place. But when we come here, we have this sanctuary of feeling this peace, this love for one another. And let's make this place secure for every believer that comes here. Let's love on one another. And let there not be disharmony. Well, this is exactly what Paul is going to preach against. Let's read with me, please, Ephesians chapter 2. And let's read from verse 11 to verse 22. But I want to remind you, if you and I decide to continue living in this fashion, then they'll come to a place that Satan will try to disrupt the very essence of what we have here in this church. He will disrupt the good works. He will disrupt the peace. He will disrupt the unity. And so many of us come here to find this place, this place of stability this place of, of unity, of harmony, because some don't have it in their workplace or in their homes. Let me tell you one thing, though, before I read these verses. Disunity among the brethren has always been a very heartache for God, if you would. Paul preached against it throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians also is preached in 1 Peter as well as here in Ephesians. Now let's read about it and see. Therefore, verse 11 of chapter 2, Therefore, Paul says, Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember, he says in verse 12, that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promises, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, But now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity, he came and he preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. 
For through him we both have our access into one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. I don't know if you can sense it or not, but those words by Paul are trying to bring bring two groups of people into one, Gentile and Jew, but it goes further than that. It goes to all people, all places, everywhere, that there would be unity within the body of Christ. I want that for this church more than, more than almost my own breath. I want for this church a couple of things. I want you and me to grow in the knowledge of God's Word. I want us to study the Bible as we do here, line upon line. I want us to know what's written in here so that we can know what evil we are fighting against and we can know where the, where the enemy is coming from and how he tries to attack us. The second thing I want for you and me is to be comfortable with one another. As I've already mentioned, I would love for this place to be a sanctuary for peace and unity. There's very little out of it out in the world in which we live. I want us to be able to come here and feel relaxed and comfortable with one another. And just really love each other as family. A real, real good family. I don't know how to say it more than that. Father, I do want that more than, more than almost my breath itself. I really do want, as I, as I live this life that you have given to me, and you give me so many years, it's, it's incredible. And I thank you for my health, thank you for all the things that you've so graciously given me so I could spend as much time as possible trying to fulfill what I believe is, is your heartbeat for us, to understand your word, to make no apologies for it, to study it line upon line and to get to know it so that we might really understand, really get to know your heart, what you want for us. And so I want to study the Bible. And Father, I also want unity within the family of God. I think there's so much going on out there in the world, whether it be in the business world or schools or places that we are being tossed to and fro by all sorts of stuff that's coming after us anymore. It's hard to recognize what kind of a country we live in anymore. It's, uh, it's changing you promised us that things would change, but you promised us that you would stay the same yesterday, today, forever. So may we find our strength and our stability in you. May you be our rock. And may this church, aptly named the rock, build its uh, very essence upon who you are so that we could really love one another. As Dave Perry said to me last night, understand why I'm understand why I'm born again now. It's not for myself, he said. It's for you and for the ability I have to glorify my Lord through what I do. May we all understand that. I pray in Jesus' precious name.
Amen. Let me show you how important this this whole premise is. Turn back with me, please, to John uh, chapter 17. Very familiar place within the Word of God. It is the intercessory prayer, the prayer of Jesus Christ in the garden for, for the disciples, for the church, actually for you and me. He uh, incorporated us all into this wonderful prayer in John chapter 17. It's to the left, of course. He says uh, in this, in verse 20, which um, this is not part of what I wanted us really to look at, but I want you to know, he says, Jesus is praying, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. This, this high priestly prayer was made for you and for me long ago by Jesus Christ. But look what he's praying for. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And so he says to the Father, I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be, no, one, even as we are. Turn ahead a little bit, just look ahead to verse 21, 22, and 23. He prays again that they, you and I, we may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that so that the world may believe that you sent me. Our being unified, our being in harmony, folks, lets the world know that God sent His Son. What a wonderful, wonderful uh, privilege that we get to love on one another just to prove who Jesus Christ is to this world in which we live. Verse 22, The glory that you have given me, Jesus says, I've given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world might know, so that the world might know that you sent me and loved them even as you have, have loved me. Can you not see the overwhelming emphasis that Jesus Christ himself has placed on our being one, at peace with one another in unity? as a body of believers. To listen to his prayer, it, it is obvious that Jesus Christ is greatly concerned about our unity as a body of believers, our love for one another within the church, as, as he is spelled out in his intercessory prayer. But Paul makes mention here in Ephesians, as well as First and Second Corinthians, and as well as Peter does in First Peter, unity within the body of Christ. Within the kingdom of Jesus Christ, if you want to now, please turn back to Ephesians. We're going to kind of stay there a little bit. Within the body of Christ, Paul is explaining that all the barriers have been broken down. All because of Jesus Christ. There are, he says, no more distinctions there are no classes, there are no races, there are no walls, there are no genders. We are all simply to become one in Christ. So here in the book of Ephesians, 
Paul demonstrates that our salvation is secure. He wants you and me to know that. He has done that in chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians. He has let us know that in the past, God the Father secured our salvation. He has allowed us positionally to be holy and blameless. In the present, Jesus Christ has redeemed us by the blood that He shed upon the cross, giving us everlasting life and the forgiveness of our sins. And in the future, God the Holy Spirit is going to personally present us to the Father who is in heaven. We are secure, Paul taught in in Ephesians 1 and part of Ephesians chapter 2, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all had a part in our salvation. Seeing that our salvation is fixed, Jesus Christ was comfortable enough to say in John chapter 6 and verse 40, you don't need to look it up, he says, this is the will of my Father, Jesus said. Everyone, he says, that beholds the Son and believes in me will have everlasting eternal life. And now Jesus says, and I myself will raise that person up on the last day. We are secure in who we are in Christ. So Paul desires in our security and who we are in Christ, knowing that Christ, when we have come to Him, has given us things to do. He has given us, uh, uh, He has created good works so that we might walk in these things. He wants us to bind together in unity. He wants us to love one another. He wants us to be of one mind here on earth within His church. Why? So that we might demonstrate to the world that God sent His Son to be our Savior. It's a wonderful responsibility. It is, it is nece- I think it's important for you and my, for, for us to consider how we treat one another within the family of God. So prejudices were to be put away. Look at verse 11. He says, remember, formerly you, Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, that means Gentiles, very low name for Gentiles, by the so-called circumcision, that is the Jews, remember that you were called uncircumcised. Paul tells you and me to remember who we were before coming to Christ. That is, as far as the Jews are concerned. We were considered outcasts. He refers to the Gentiles as uncircumcised. It was a term of contempt. Do you remember the story? In, In 1 Samuel, 17th chapter, David goes to see his brothers. They're off to a war. Do you remember the war they're in? The Philistines are there. And they're all on two sides of this big valley and, 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 and the Jewish army is kind of sitting there and David said, what's going on? How come we aren't beating these guys up? And they said, look. And they pointed to a guy. You remember who it was? Goliath. Boom. And he says, Goliath? I'll whoop him. They got mad at David. You know, just this little guy. So they go and take him to Saul. David says... I'll fight him. I'll fight him and I'll beat him up. (laughs) So Saul says, "Uh, nobody else wants to fight him. Okay, 
here, take my armor. And you know, Saul was bigger than David, so his armor is way too big. And David says, I, I don't want your armor. I don't want your armor. I got what I need. I got a little sling here. I got a couple stones. I'm fine. Fine and dandy. I took care of the sheep, and sometimes a bear or a lion would come, and I would run them off. I would run them off. I ain't afraid of that. I'm afraid of that Goliath guy. And so when he goes down to fight him, do you remember what David called him when he ran towards him? He says, you uncircumcised Philistine. He called him a name. He name called him. He says, you are uncircumcised, meaning you have no God to speak of. I am representing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we're going to knock you out. You uncircumcised Philistine. Hits him in the head, cuts up. That's way too much information, but he did. That was a name of great contempt. And that's who, verse 12, we once were. Those of us who did not know the Lord. We were, look at verse 12. He says, remember, you were at that time separated, one, separated from Christ. Two, you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Three, you were strangers from the covenant of promise. Four, you don't have any hope. And five, you are without God in this world. That's the fate of those who are without Christ, Jew, Gentile, anyone. Separated from Christ is perhaps the best definition that you can find in Scripture for a person who is lost and condemned for hell, separated from Christ. They are without a Savior. They are without a Deliverer. They are without the Messiah. They are separated from Christ, lost as lost could be. Therefore, they are also is verse 12, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, a Gentile had absolutely no God-given religion. They had no right to go back into the Old Testament and take the promises of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to take those promises that God gave to Israel and then appropriate them into their own lives. You see, the Gentiles received absolutely no special blessings and no special protection from God because they were outside of the family of God. They were excluded from the dominion of God. They were, as he says, thirdly, strangers. They were strangers to the covenants of promises. In other words, God had made certain promises to Israel. And no Gentile had any right to claim these promises for themselves. The only way that we could claim them was to adopt or be adopted into the Hebrew family, to accept the Hebrew faith and become therefore a part of the family of God through the nation of Israel. But no Gentile had that right in and of themselves. We were, they were strangers to these promises. And the supreme promise, the supreme covenant that God gave to Israel through Abraham was in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. 
God said to Abraham, I want you to leave your mom and dad. I want you to go off into a place that I will show you. And God says in Genesis 12, verse 2 and 3, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I'm going to curse. And in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. That was a promise given by God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Abraham, and could only be appropriated by the Jews. So the Gentiles and those who were without God were strangers to this promise. They had no right to claim it. Which meant, verse 12, they also therefore were without hope, having no hope. You see, apart from Jesus Christ, no one has hope. No other religion can promise what God has promised. He has promised eternal life. And He has promised eternal life. And He has proved eternal life by one event. It happened three days after the cross. It was what? The resurrection. Through the resurrection, He has made true His promise. He has shown us that He can raise any and every one of us from the dead. He will give us everlasting life. All other religions are at best hazy about what happens after death. Not so with our faith. Our hope is a profound blessing that gives meaning to what we believe and security security to who we are in Christ. It's a great promise. So therefore... We are not without hope. We have hope. But if we are all of these things, if we are separated from Christ, if we are excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, if we are strangers to the the covenant of promises, if we are without hope, then we are also five, as it says in verse 12, without God in this world in which we live. Now that does not mean that God has removed Himself from mankind, but rather that man has removed himself from God. Mankind is wandering about without hope if they are without Christ. I enjoy listening to talk radio. I enjoy listening to anything that is discussion-oriented on television. I happen upon a program that I don't watch very often because I won't even mention what it is, but it's not a great program. But it had a discussion between this guy who wrote a book believing that there is no God. He's an atheist's atheist. He, is, his, he said on this show that his, his purpose in life was to destroy all young people from believing in that fallacy, that, that, that pie-in-the-sky God thing that everyone should not believe in Him. And they both were in the same camp. They were both sitting there talking about the hope that they did not have. And the Bible says clearly that I was watching two fools. The Bible says a fool has said in his heart there is no God. And they were fools who were reasoning that there was no God. And that's what this world wants to do with most people. They want to take it to where there is no God. But it's not that they're intellectual atheists. Most people believe in something. You boil it down. They'll believe in something. Great example was Paul when he was in Athens. When Paul was in Athens, he walked to a place called Mars Hill. And on Mars Hill, he noted as he walked through Athens that there were all kinds of, of idols, idols everywhere, to all kinds of gods. 
And when he spoke before the people of Athens, Paul said in, 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 in Acts chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, he says, I perceive that you are a very religious group of people in all respects. Because he said, while I was passing through your city, I examined the objects of your worship and I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. In other words, they're covering all bases. They figured, well, we think we know all the gods, but just in case, let's make an idol to that one that we don't even know about that might be out there that could get angry if we don't worship him. You know what it reminded me of? Many years ago, I was watching the Johnny Carson show, and Sammy Davis Jr. came on his show, who was a fabulous entertainer. But he came on his show and he told Johnny Carson he just became a Jew. And he looked at Johnny Carson. I don't believe I was a believer when I watched this program. But he looked at him and said, I'm covering all my bases. I want to be a Jew as well as a Gentile. Well, you can't do that. You can't cover all the bases. You've got to choose. That's what Joshua said. He looked at the people and he said, Choose for yourselves whom you will serve. But for me and my house... What? We're going to serve the Lord. That's what we're going to do. And that's what Paul was saying. You're atheists, but you're, you still have something that you value, something that you hold to. Well, remember verse 4? I want to close with this. In verse 4, after, after Paul told, uh, told us in, in chapter 2, in verses 1, 2, and 3, that we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, and then he says, we all formerly lived in this fashion, but then he goes in verse 4, but God, but God, being rich in His mercy. Well, Paul has just told us, we are like uncircumcised. That, that, that is a, a terrible thing to be called. And we are separated from Christ. We're excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. We're strangers to the covenant of promise. We have no hope and we're without God. But now, verse 13, but now, two of the best words, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And what a great, great promise. We are now one in Christ. Paul said in, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, 27, 28, he says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ. He says in verse 20, All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself in Christ. And then he says this in verse 28, watch, there is now neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Because you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's words of unity, but now, brings all of us to that place where we are now near to God. In Christ Jesus, all of us who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood that Jesus Christ shed upon the cross. Now in the weeks to come, we're going to look at these things. Watch. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, look at verses 14 through 22. Verse 14. Both groups are one. He, God, is our peace. Verse 15. He has made two into one new man. Verse 16. He has reconciled both of us into one body. Verse 17, He has preached 
peace to those who were far away and to those who are near. Verse 18, we both have our access to one spirit, to the Father. Verse 19, we are fellow citizens of God's household. Verse 20, Jesus Christ is our very cornerstone. Verse 22, in whom we are right now being built together. Look, you and I have the ability, now we have the privilege of showing the world our love for one another. And in showing the world our love for one another, we can show our our admiration, our respect, our love for God. A verse that I was asked, a couple of verses that I was asked to learn when I first became a believer is in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, A new commandment I have given unto you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, so you should have love one for another. He goes on to say, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have, what? Love for one another. It is not by accident, folks, that every day that I can, and every day I have the opportunity to stand before you, that some t- somewhere, someplace in the message, I tell you that I love you. Now, I've had people question me about saying that over and over and over again. Say, so you don't even hardly know me. How can you love me? And I try to tell people why. You, you force me into the Word of God. You make me a better person. You help me to grow in my faith. You, you, you allow me to study the Bible so that I can come and talk to you about that. And in studying the Bible, I have become a better person. I love you for that. I love you more than you'll ever know. But I also love you because the Lord God Himself has asked me to love others, especially within the family of God, especially to love you. And so it's not just something I say when I tell you that I love you. It is something that comes from the very inner parts of me. I love you with all my heart. I love you with all my soul. I thank you for who you are. I know you're going to tell me. I love you too. I know it, I know it, I know it. And you know what? I look forward to that. That's kind of you to say that. Father, I want to thank you for the love that this church has for one another. I pray that that Satan would not get a foothold uh, on that place of what I would consider strength in this church of yours. That we would continue to love each other. Because, Father, it will demonstrate very clearly to this world in which we live that we glorify your holy and righteous name and that you have been sent by the Father. And so, Father, give us uh, the privilege to continue loving one another. As as David said to me last night, Now I know why I was saved. It's not for myself. It's for you and that I might glorify God. That's it. May we do that, Father. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I love you all so much. Goodness, I love you so much. It's hot out there. Enjoy your day. I'll see you next week.